Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, March 21st. On today's show, we are joined by tennis journalist extraordinaire Jose Morgado to break down some of the top storylines heading into the 2023 Miami Open. Of course, this event in Miami serves as the second half of the Sunshine Swing, the back-to-back 1,000-level events we have here in the United States. Of course, these events see just about every top 50 player in the world compete in them. As such, they promise to deliver extraordinary actions. Certainly, Indian Wells did its part. We're hoping Miami does the same over the course of the next two-ish weeks. And on today's show, Jose and I discuss some of the things we'll be watching most closely as action gets underway. Now, I'm sure many of you listeners can guess what those biggest storylines heading into the Miami Open are, but nevertheless, we wanted to help set the scene for all of you listeners. Of course, I had to take the time also to discuss Jose's passion for tennis. No one in this business works harder than Jose. I wanted to hear where that passion, where that work ethic comes from. So again, it is a fantastic podcast that I am certain all of you listeners are going to enjoy. We'll have have more Miami Open content coming up for all of you, of course, over the next 10-ish days, two weeks, however long this event spans, as well as, again, we are super excited for the second half of the Sunshine Swing to get underway. Of course, the reason we're able to bring you these podcasts day in, day out is because of the support we get from all of you, and of course, because of the support we get from our dear friends at Tennis Point. You all know the deal, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. With all of that said, here is my conversation with the one and only Jose Morgado. Joining us on the podcast for the first time today is a guest I have been chasing since the inception of this show and a man I consider the most followed journalist on all of tennis Twitter, a man who makes all of our lives easier by offering us updates on everything happening at any given moment in the tennis world. Welcome on to our podcast, the great Jose Morgado. Jose, how are you doing today? Thank you, Alex, for having me. I'm great. I'm doing great getting ready for for Miami. It's been a it's been a busy couple of weeks and it's been fun. Yeah, I was joking around with you beforehand. We're recording this on Tuesday, March 21st. You did a TV hit earlier today. Now, I don't have a makeup crew to polish you up like they did, but let me just say you looked stellar on TV. And, you know, again, it's great to have, it's great to see your success. Great to see so many people recognize what you do for the sport. Before we get into our top five Miami storylines, I am curious, where does your passion for the game come from? Yeah, it's it's a good question, and a lot of people ask me that because uh, Port- Portugal is a very football-oriented country, as you know. Uh, all the other sports are are pretty much in the shadow of of football, the, which is the the real the, the the only sport that that where we are really really good. We, we were European champions, and and we obviously have for for the last decade or so Cristiano Ronaldo as as the biggest, pretty much the biggest personality of the country. But but yeah, I'm 
the first match I watched live, I believe it was um, uh, the the women's final, the women's French Open final between between Jennifer Capriati and Kim Kleisters in uh, 2001. Uh, I, I was eight or nine years old, something like that, and and I really enjoyed what, what the, how, how epic the final was. Jennifer won, I believe, 12-10 in the third set, a long third set. The match was pretty epic. Kleisters was a was a, a very young young player. Jennifer was a, an incredible story for for the things that she had been uh, had been through uh, before uh, during the nineties. So 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 yeah, I started I started my pre- my passion pretty much there. Watching watching then a lot of matches, the the men's final with Guga, and and the the rise of the Williams sisters that was during that period, and then Federer came and Nadal. So it was a. a a, a, a pretty good moment to start uh, loving tennis because it was a it was a great generation and then obviously I uh, started to to found my passion uh, about journalism when I when I when I started to to understand what what I would like to to do for life and then both passions grew the, the during the same time I created my website and and then it was pretty much that, that all the things started growing. Yeah, no, I love to hear it. And, you know, again, I've heard you talk about that before, but I want to follow up because I'm not trying to equate what we do. You do it at a far higher level scale than I do now. But that same passion, that same through line of every day you're checking the results, every day – you know, I like to think the tweet count, you got to hit at least 20 tweets a day. I feel like that's at least, that might be on the lower end uh, for the type of content, again, you're producing. I feel like you're not going to do that for this sport. As I know it's your job, but there has to be something else. Like for me, why do I do this mini break podcast every day? What is it about tennis? Well, when I was like 12, 13 years old, I think I weighed more then than I do now. And I was like six inches shorter. And then one summer, I played seven hours of tennis a day. I got skinny. Life got good for me. You know, girls were coming up and saying, hey, you look good, Alex. And I was like, tennis, I'm in. This is the sport. That's what drives the passion. Is it something like that for you? Like, I know you mentioned watching some of these great players and the rises of the Williams in some of your formative years. But were you a guy who played a lot of tennis growing up? You know, again, what is it about this sport in particular that has you hooked? Yeah, I, I did start start playing as well. Uh, till 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 I was eighteen years old, I played at a, at a decent level. I mm-hmm. Played some national tournaments. Some some ne- never n- never wanted to be professional because I I really I, I never I never practiced daily. I practiced like three four days a week maximum. So I never had the dedication and and and. I, I I I thought I was a bit talented, but never never enough to be a tennis professional. So so I, I always loved sports. I I love to watch the Olympics. I love obviously to watch football and NBA and other sports. But but yeah, there there is something about tennis, about the individual part of tennis, about the the mental part of tennis, the, of being alone on court and all that stuff. That that made me that made me enjoy uh, even more tennis compared to other sports and then the the first times that i had the chance to watch uh, tennis live i felt i felt even more love for the sport because tennis is an incredible sport to watch live some people who never had the chance to 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 watch the best plays in the world live 
can't imagine how good, how fast, how strong they are. And it's and, it, and yeah, it was all of that combined. And then obviously it helps that 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 during the last 10 or 15 years, we had a, an incredible generation of champions, of players, of personalities who help us to to pretty much stay stay in the stay in the sport and 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 make us feel that that we want to stay informed and 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 yeah <laughs> that's pretty much it no very well said and it's so funny you bring up the live in person experience because there are times at a live tennis match where I'll just be like I have no idea how this guy's winning like he looks really good he looks really good he's incredibly fit but so is this player and you're absolutely right I think TV slows things down in a way in in person tennis you're just mesmerized by everything going on and speaking of in person tennis I do want to celebrate with you a little bit you're the perfect guest to have on today because I was in person in Phoenix at the Arizona Tennis Classic Nuno Borges guy we know well here at Crack Rackets I'm fortunate to be dear friends with one of his former college teammates and obviously we covered him throughout his time at Mississippi State if I would have told you what, June, July 2020, when they were playing all those events in Portugal, right, during the pandemic. I know they offered opportunities for players. I know Nuno had a ton of success there. But if I would have told you two and a half years later, Jose, he was going to be top 70 in the world, would you have told me to off? Yeah, maybe. It's tough to say because it was very impressive every time he came to Portugal to play during the summer. So uh, during the college breaks, every time he came to Portugal to play ITF events, he won pretty much everything, with, with, which was crazy. He wasn't losing uh, matches during those <laughs> during those tournaments. So I, I I found it very impressive the way he got better at college tennis. He he got so much better, uh, so much more aggressive. His serve got so much better. He's one of the cases where uh, going to college, going going to the US made him a much, much better player. I, I, I think it was a very, very important experience for him because there are some players, obviously, like Ben Shelton, then you feel at 18 or 19, they are prepared for, for the ATP Tour. But in Nuno's case, I think he respected his timings and it's was and it it been impressive to see. Obviously, it's been very quick and, and I think the pandemic really didn't help him to, to be even quicker because I think... He lost, obviously everybody lost those five or six months, but he especially, uh, that was his first year as a, as a professional, so he lost some time. But it's it's very impressive, impressive what, what he's been doing. And, and yeah, maybe I... I thought during that that national circuit that he surely had top 100 uh, potential, but it's tough to say um, <laughs> when 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 we would get it. So 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 yeah, I'm very happy to see uh, him doing so well, and I think that that will he'll most probably end the year around the top 50 at least because he's he's playing he's playing that good. We were having some discussions amongst my fellow Nuno fans. Is Sosa the highest-ranked Portuguese men's player ever at 28? Is that the career yes. high? Do you think he can get there, Nuno? I, I think so. I think yeah. there, that, that that's a good possibility. Obviously, uh, João had a, a great career, four ATP titles, 12 ATP finals, <laughs> twice in the second week of um, 
of a Grand Slam. He was actually top 13 doubles as well, which is which is crazy and incredible career. Nunu already won a, an ATP in doubles as well, but I I think Nunu has the weapons to have a career similar or even better um, uh, compared to Joan's. Obviously, he has that serve. And he, he really doesn't have a weak point on the baseline. He, he has a very good forehand, a very solid backhand. He, he physically is, he got so much better and he works, he works very well. I, I interviewed this coach, Rui Machado, who was also a, a top 60 player, uh, one of the best ever in Portugal. And he's the Davis Cup uh, captain as well. And I, I interviewed him yesterday and he told me, uh, that Nunu is is one of the hardest workers that he that he ever met. So that that helps, and I I think with the weapons he has, if he if he keeps developing developing and, and and getting better in some of them, I think he surely can get into the top thirty. I hope he stays healthy, because if he stays healthy, I think that the, that the top fifty is a reality for this season. I believe he's twenty two in the race, so he, he just he just needs to to keep uh, uh, playing some ATP events and start winning matches consistently in them. He never lost in the first round of an ATP event. <laughs> Every time he played a, an ATP, he, he, he won at least a round. He, uh, the, the only, the only uh, two-level events that he lost in the first round it, it were the, the Grand Slams because on the ATP Tour he never lost in the first round. So I think that he has the level to to make his first ATP quarterfinal and semifinal. So, so yeah, we, we will need to see, but I... I think he has the potential to be a top 30 player for sure. Sosa making 12 ATP finals. I wasn't expecting that number. That's yeah. sneaky high. That's a lot. And so that's a tough metric to hit. You're right. Watching Nuno in person, though, it's just you're, it's the racket speed. It's his hands. If he gets his hands on the ball, it's going back service line or deeper. Like the tennis has never been the issue. And to see him, you know, I hadn't seen him since 2019 probably in person. He's just an athlete now. He's not the skinny kid that showed up in Starkville in 2016. And so, you know, again, I had to ask you about it. We had to celebrate. Of course, the fact that Nuno went from a Phoenix Challenger final ended will be generous and say 8.30 p.m. Eastern time. He then plays his qualifying match less than 24 hours later in Miami. He wins it. He's got final round qualifying tonight as well. We'll be watching that. I won't lie, though. That's not one of my top five storylines heading into Miami. It's one of our top five storylines for you and I, Jose. But I do want to ask you about some of the other big picture things heading into Miami because obviously we're at the halfway mark of the Sunshine Swing. We've got back-to-back 1,000-level events. We're going to see just about every top player in the world competing in these men's and women's singles draws. Would you agree with me that the number one story going into this, it has to be Carlos Alcaraz, right? I mean, to see Alcaraz in his first hardcore event of the year, not just win Indian Wells, but win Indian Wells without dropping a set. And I know Novak Djokovic isn't in the draw. I know we don't have Rafael Nadal in the draw either. But if Carlos Alcaraz sweeps the sunshine swing, maybe you don't have him as the top top player in the world. But if he wins it, it's Djokovic 1A, Alcaraz 1B, and then everyone else, right? Isn't that the biggest storyline going into this? Yeah, yeah, surely, because he obviously he's the defending champion. He just won Indian Wells, and and like you said, he won Indian Wells without dropping a set and absolutely destroying Daniel Medvedev, who was on a 19 matches winning streak, 
beating pretty much everybody, including Novak Djokovic. So I think, obviously, we know that Medvedev doesn't love the conditions in Indian Wells. And we, 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 find, we found out after maybe 10 or 15 minutes of that final that in those conditions, that would be a nightmare matchup for Medvedev. <laughs> the only chance he had uh, w- was if uh, Carlos maybe started to started to miss um, a couple of more shots than expected. But 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 yeah, Carlos is obviously the man to beat in Miami. It's very tough to um, to see how we will lose. I think it will it will it will a, a bad day of Carlos Alcaraz will be needed for him to lose. Because, yeah, there are a couple of players playing, obviously, good tennis. Medvedev is one of them, but he doesn't love the conditions in Miami either. Obviously, we had some players that had success in the past there. Urkac, uh, Sinner, Fritz, who, who is having a good start of the year as well. But but Carlos is obviously a man to beat. He has to be uh, pretty much everybody's pick to win the, to win the tournament and to, to keep the number one. So... Like you said, I'm very excited to finally have Djokovic and Alcaraz playing the same tournament because it's been a while. They they played Paris, but but yeah, Alcaraz got injured. But since Wimbledon, we don't see them uh, playing playing the same big tournament at the U.S. Open. Djokovic obviously didn't play. Then the ATP Finals and the Australian Open, Carlitos didn't play, and now Indian Wells. So I really hope, I really hope they. They can both play Monte Carlo and and Madrid and Rome, but but yeah, Carlos is the is the is the biggest storyline on the men's side for for Miami. He's the man to beat, and I think he's the favorite to win the tournament. Nineteen years old, he's fifty nine and twelve over the course of the past year. He's winning eighty three percent of his matches, and I did this rant yesterday for our listeners. But you look back in history. It's like, who is the 80% club that and winning Masters and Slams in that 80% win percentage over a year stretch? It's like Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, they were 88 to 92 in their primes. That's why they're the best. But people who float above 80, it's like Sampras, it's Agassi, it's Edberg, it's Prime Courier, and, you know, again, Lendl, all these guys. Elkrez is doing these things at age 19. And you're right, he is the defending Miami champion. And it was just he had an answer for everything he, that was thrown at him at Indian Wells. And it looks like he's driving his backhand with better depth. You look at the numbers. He's holding serve about a percent more frequently this season. He's breaking serve more frequently. I always say the biggest development, Jose, is he has chest muscles now. It's like every time you see him, he's three to five pounds stronger. It's just it, it is remarkable to watch. And I think what's so amazing about Alcaraz is, yeah, you have all these numbers you can turn to. And, yeah, he's won titles now. But everyone can see it with their eyes. It's just this guy has it. And you brought up a notion there, which I don't think is the second biggest storyline. But I do think it is in the top five. In your mind right now, in a djokovic field, I know you brought up Medvedev. Let's throw him out as well. Who are the biggest challengers to Alcaraz, right? Isn't that one of the biggest storylines here moving forward? Because with Alcaraz winning the U.S. Open, now he wins Indian Wells. It's like, is anyone going to catch this guy on a hard court? Who are the people you would circle to think, yeah, maybe they're the next closest? Yeah, it's it's tough to say, but obviously we, 
we saw at the US Open that Yannick Sinner had a match point against Carlos Alcaraz. So it was a bit disappointing the semi-final that they they have in they had in in Inirals because I, I think it was probably the worst match that Carlos played and uh, in Inirals and still Sinner co- couldn't win a set. I think both play um um a bit below their 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 usual levels, especially compared to the to that last match at the US Open, especially compared to, to the level that Sinner played at Wimbledon against Carlos and, and in the UMAC final that he won as well. So so yeah, I think obviously Yannick Sinner, uh, Taylor Fritz won uh, won won Indian Wells last year and made the semis in the in the um, in the ATP finals. He was a bit in one Tokyo as well. He was a bit disappointing in the last two slams. But but he was a top five player just just last week, so I think we have to uh, to count with him to to challenge Alcaraz on our court because obviously he got the serve, and it's a matchup that we haven't seen um, actually on on the highest level. Um, but yeah, apart from that, it's it's tough to say. Maybe obviously Olga Rune is having a bit an up and down season, especially at the physical side, having a couple of a couple of injuries, but yeah, apart from that, and apart from Djokovic and Medvedev, uh, it's tough to say on hard courts because I, obviously, if if we were talking about the clay season, I think then we have to talk a bit about Stefanos Tsitsipas sure. and and maybe about Kasper Ruud. Even if I I think in the in the in that matchup matchup between between Alcaraz and Ruud, I think on every surface. Uh, in, Alcaraz will will pretty much always decide the the outcome of the match because that matchup is, in theory, very good for him. Yeah, the other guy I would throw in there on a hard court is Felix. I thought Felix played him really tightly at Indian Wells, and he does have the serve, the forehand to play with pace and disrupt some of the things Alcaraz wants to do. But I mean, you're right. Like Yannick had set point. Let's not forget in that first set against Indian at Indian Wells, and of course Carlos comes up with a drop shot volley combination that only Carlos Alcaraz comes up with in those moments, seemingly with such ease. It is interesting because again he's 19 years old. The only thing that slowed him down over the past year is his health. Like we didn't see him in Australia, and given his run at Indian Wells, boy, if he wins the Sunshine Swing, wins both events, like you're right. The most anticipated matchup of the season now is the first time Alcaraz Djokovic go head to head on a court, and it's something we all want to see. On the women's side, there's been a lot of talk of you know a hierarchy forming, and that there's a pretty clear cut top three emerging, Sviantek, Sabalenka, Rabakina. Are you in that camp of thought, Jose, that that is your clear-cut top three? Do, would you include any other players in that conversation? I think that is one of the biggest storylines right now, right, is that it just seems to be Sviantek, Sabalenka, Rabakina. Those, I mean, their best right now is better than anyone else's. Yeah, I think that that is correct, especially because they are the they are holding the Grand Slams at the moment. Obviously, mm-hmm. with Triantec, uh, uh winning the the French and the U.S. Open, and and Rivakina winning Wimbledon and making the Australian Open finals, now winning Indian Wells, Sabalenka winning winning in Melbourne, and now making the final in in Indian Wells. So I, I think that that they are in a different level. 
Um, but it, it's it's been very interesting because I I, I think uh, during during the last the last three or four or five seasons on on the WTA side we had a lot of new Grand Slam champs that that then couldn't really um, kept it together. Obviously, then Barty happened, and then Barty retired. So so I I think it it would be important for tennis to have to for the WTA side to have two or three players. Who can who can stand out from the other from the others and play pretty much every week uh, against each other and I and I think that apart from that the matchups are good especially the, this one between Rybakin and Sabalenka on paper uh, we would we would think that that matchup wouldn't work and would be, it would be an error fest because they are very aggressive and they would tend to miss a lot. But no, the, the matchup is good. They played a great match at the Australian Open. And now, the, especially the first set in Union Wells, it, it was very, very good again. So so I think it's an important moment for, for the WTA. Obviously, there are other players. Jasper Gould and Coco Goff are very consistent. Uh, Ons Jabeur made two uh, Grand Slam finals in 2022. She's struggling still with her body uh, this year. But 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 uh, Sakari just made another another big semifinal. Obviously, we know that she can't win titles, but, but she's always there. So yeah, I think we are living in an exciting moment for for women's tennis, and I hope that those three players can can stay can stay fit and play well during the clay season. Because I uh, there is a big question mark about Rivakin on clay. Um, I'm I'm curious to see, but but Sabalenka already won uh, Madrid in the past with a bit of altitude, so I think she can play on clay. And Rivakin, obviously, with that serve. And with that, with those ground strokes, obviously she will struggle a bit moving, but I think that that tennis can work everywhere. Yeah, I really well said. I mean, again, it because Serena didn't play Indian Wells for the longest time. There haven't been a ton of double sunshine swing champions on the women's side. Now, of course, Sviantek did it last year, but, you know, prior to that, I think you'd have to go all the way. I want to say Kim Kleister's in 2005. And, and Azarenka did it as well. The oh, Victoria Azarenka did. Oh, in yeah. 2000. Yeah, yes. Good call yeah. by you. I mean, yeah, like, again, in 2016 for Azarenka was the year. It's just like, it's rare, and it does feel like Rabakina is capable of doing it if she serves her best, if she is swinging, you know, as cleanly as she was. And it is interesting because that Indian Wells surface is so perfect for her. It's a little slower. It's a little high bouncing. Everything's right in her strike zone. And, you know, it was funny. I was talking to Alexander Kovacevic about the slow courts in Phoenix, and he was describing them as, well, it's nice for me to play on them because I think of it as I can hit a winner on these courts and you can't. And that's Rabakina, right? She's like, well, on any court, I can hit a winner. And I don't know. It doesn't really matter if my opponent can or can't. Where I'm at, though, with this storyline, I think there's been some Barbora Krachikova erasure. And I just like, I think she has to belong right in this conversation with these other three players. Because when you look at what she's done, if you want to go even more broadly since the start of 2021, obviously she wins uh, a French Open singles title, was an unequivocal top five player that season, and was you know top five to start 2022 as well, making the Australian Open quarters and you know again making a final in Sydney the first week before getting injured. And you know you want to look at her 
really since the ending of the U.S. Open last year where, you know, she goes on to rip off those back-to-back titles in Tallinn in Ostrava. Uh, during this stretch of time now, Bar- uh, Barbara Krachikova, a ridiculous number overall. She's 22-6 and six during this stretch. And, like, you know, the losses are three sets to Sabalenka, three sets to Kudermatova, five and six to Samsonova, five and two to Pagula. She's also beaten Iga twice in finals. Like, the only player you can say that about, other than Rabakina, who's also beaten her twice this season, she has the game, she has the aggression. Like, had she had that three-set loss to Sabalenka been the semifinal and not the round of 16, wouldn't, shouldn't, like, wouldn't we have her in that group, Jose? Yeah, I, I think in terms of in terms of potential and what she has, then obviously in Dubai she she won the other big tournament of the year. So, so I think she's close. But but yeah, like you said, she she needs to to get a, a ranking a bit higher to avoid some some bad draws. She's playing Sabalenka again in the fourth round of Miami, so it's not an ideal draw. So we'll they will play probably earlier than than they should. And and that's because of um, Kratchikova's ranking isn't uh, maybe what it should be. But I she she obviously doesn't have much to defend from now on till September. So so I think we will see her in the top ten very very soon and 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 maybe even better top five. So so yeah, in terms of, of what she did, like like you said, she 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 beat a lot of good players and she only lost to good players. But some some of the draws she she had were were bad. Pagula in the fourth round of the uh, in Melbourne, and, and I believe she had uh, Kvitova in the third round in Melbourne. But but Kvitova end, ended up losing in the second round, so her draw was terrible. And then first round, I believe in Doha against against Kudermatova, losing I believe seven six in the third, same, something like that. So so yeah, she 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 had, she has been a, a bit unlucky with with the draws. So. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why she's a bit uh, behind the other the other three plays in terms of results. But I think we we have to count on her for the for, for Miami. She has another fourth round on paper against Sabalenka, but but for the clay season as well. Obviously, she she knows uh, what wh- what to do to win the French Open. So mm-hmm. so it's very exciting to see. And and on the other hand, it's exciting to see wh- where she lands in the draws as a as a lower seed because Thanks. it will be. Yeah, it will be one of the one of the most interesting points to to analyze when when we analyze a woman's draw for the for the clay season too. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. You brought up the key point. She is playing free tennis essentially over the course of the next five months. It's all easy points added. But you mentioned her as a 16 seed. Some would call her, you know, under the traditional sense because of that seed, a sleeper. Now we know better than that here at Crack Rackets because. If you win a title in the Middle East, how can you be considered a sleeper in an event like this? You beat Iga in two finals in the past six months. I am curious, though, that's storyline number four, and I got two more for you here. Who are the sleepers? If you were to point to some sleepers, some names we're not talking about coming out of Indian Wells that you're like, you know what? I could see this player making a run into Tuesday, Wednesday of next week or, you know, upsetting a seed this week in Miami. Let's start on the women's side because I always think that's the more fascinating conversation. Who are the sleepers you'd point to? Yeah, on the on the women's side, it's it's very it's very tough everyone. To, yeah, yeah. It's, there there is, for example, a, a first round match between Bianca Andreescu and Emma mm-hmm. Raducanu, who actually played well in Indian Wells. Uh, both played 
uh, especially Andrew Bianca played played Iga very tough in the third round. Uh, Raducanu obviously beat uh, uh, two top twenty players, Lynette and and Avad Maia. So and and then. Uh, Push Diga for 30 minutes during that match. So, so yeah, obviously it, the draw is, is incredibly packed. So it, it, it's really tough to point out. I think Victoria Azarenka won Miami a lot of times, made the semifinals in Melbourne. If she can find some form, she's someone who isn't really talked at the moment after losing Hurley in, in Inimel. So I think, and, and she, she doesn't have a bad draw. Belinda Bensic started the season very well, but didn't play well in Indian Wells. Can can play can play well in Miami. She made the semis, I believe, two years ago, losing to Osaka. Uh, and there are, there are a lot of players who can mm-hmm. who, who can who can be who can be sleepers on the women's side. Obviously, that then there are some names that that are playing that are playing better tennis to start the year. Dona Vekic, for example, uh, I would like to to see what what she will do after winning a title in in Monterey. She was pretty quick to go to Indian Wells and things didn't go well, but she's having a a very strong strong start of the season. And yeah, there obviously there are the yeah. Americans, Madison Keys. Uh, sure, curious to watch uh, Coco Golf. She has been losing uh, a lot of matches. Pretty, pretty handily to top players, but she has been beating everybody she should she should beat. To be honest, so I'm I'm curious to see if it's in Miami where she will finally have a very very strong win. So yeah, the, the women's the women's draw has a lot of points yeah. of interest. No, the two I would point to Vondrosova, who I think can absolutely beat uh, Kudermatova in round number two, and then she lost first round at Indian Wells, won a title though the week prior, her first of her career. How about Marta Kostyuk? Like if she oh. plays Coco Goff in a potential third round match, and I think she'd have to get through Potapova in the second round first. Boy, that would be. I mean, that's a highlight reel sort of one. That that match is going on center court. That match is going three hours. That match is going three sets. I, I could see a world where Kostyuk, I don't know, rips off a quarterfinal, does something crazy like that this week because certainly I think she's capable of it. But yeah, you you brought up a lot of good names on the women's side, and I think when you're looking for sleepers on the men's side, the conversation does have to drift towards the American men because obviously guys like Hercots and Nori and you know even the Hatchinov quarterfinal run that comes here and there as well we know what those guys are capable of but I am curious because I'm trapped in the American men's tennis bubble and this is my final question for you here today coming off of an Indian Wells where you know, every so often you pull a rabbit out of the hat. You looked at the draw. It just felt like Francis Tiafo had the most advantageous draw. Tommy had to run through a gauntlet. Fritz with Shelton round one, all these different things. You know, Tiafo comes out of Indian Wells as a semifinalist. Played the amazing match with Medvedev where he fights off seven match points, forces that second set breaker. He's coming off of a U.S. Open semifinal as well. Of course, you have a world where Taylor Fritz became the first American since Andy Roddick to be top five in the ATP rankings, even if it was only for a week. He's a top 10 American right now. He's the highest ranked American. Of course, you have guys like Shelton, Korda, Nakashima, Brooksby on the rise. Obviously, again, what Tommy Paul's done over these last six months, incredible. So my final question to you because I do think this is the biggest storyline, again, of this Sunshine Swing, or one of them. Who's the best American man in tennis, right? Um, American man in tennis right now, Jose? I, I think the the best is still clearly Taylor Fritz. I think he, 
any any show obviously he lost to Tommy Paul that tough match that unbelievable match in Acapulco but he is the most consistent he's the most reliable in my opinion that serve is massive is one of the best in the world and and his ball is getting bigger by the year I think that forehand is impressive the backhand is very solid technically um and I I think he's still the best but but if I look at the Miami draw I think Tiafo is the one with a with a better mm-hmm. chance again to make to make a good run because he he has a very good draw. Obviously, got Felix in the fourth round, but I uh, I think you wouldn't mind that matchup at the moment. Uh, and then Tsitsipas in the quarters, and we don't know how Tsitsipas is uh, physically. And and then uh, Tommy Paul and Taylor Fritz are on the Alcaraz quarter of the draw and and um, Paul has to play him in the fourth round Fritz got Rune in the fourth round and then maybe Alcaraz in the quarterfinals so I think if if I ha- if if I would pick one of them to go to go to make a semi-final again I would go with with Tiafo again and he loves the conditions in my in Miami his previous best results at a Masters 1000 was was at the Art Rock Stadium a quarterfinal some some years ago so I think he will I think he has a good chance to do well again, and I enjoyed very much to watch Francis Tiafoe in Indian Wells. I think it was some of the most mature performance I ever watched him play. The match against Cam Norrie was very, very impressive. I wasn't expecting the match to be a straight sets win for for Tiafoe, but I still have to go with Fritz if you ask me what's the what's the most the most like uh, likely Grand Slam champions from the men's side, the Grand Slam champion on the men's side from the from the US. I wouldn't be shocked to see Taylor Fritz win Wimbledon, for example, if he gets if he gets better. Obviously, we know how how tough it is to beat uh, Novak Djokovic there. But I think if if I think in a top five list of favorites for Wimbledon at the moment. I think obviously Taylor Fritz has to be up there, winning a couple of titles on grass and making the the quarterfinals last year. Very fair. I would counter and say, let's not forget what Seb Korda looked like in the month of January. Now, obviously, he's out with injury right now, but could have beaten Djokovic. Absolutely. That first week of the season destroyed Medvedev in Australia and just hit the cover off of the ball. He has the size. He has all the things you're looking for. Now, he's not in the draw here. You mentioned it, though. Fritz and Paul are in that Alcaraz quarter. Brutal draw for them. Tiafo's draw, you mentioned. The interesting ones are like, could J.J. Wolf go beat Andre Rublev in round number two? We saw it at the City Open. Two guys who love the serve, love the forehand. I mean, that's that should be a center court match in Miami. And then Ben Shelton's the 32 seed. That's just interesting to me. And you look for Ben, who I believe uh, falls inside that Medvedev quarter of the draw, potential third round with Hercots. I mean, he was on the cusp of beating Fritz at Indian Wells. And again, my whole thing is if these two events being on U.S. soil, got to have an American man in championship weekend. Doesn't have to be the final, but to get Tiafo to the semifinal last weekend was huge. Would love to see it again in Miami. I think Tiafo, to your point, has the best odds. But uh, again, Shelton and Wolf would be the two dark horse people I watch. And with all that in mind, I know we don't have to watch. We'll see you on tennis Twitter, active throughout Miami. I am curious. Do you have any specific plans for how you're going to cover that event? 
No, I'm I'm just I'm gonna I'm gonna be commentating the event on TV as well. Starting starting tomorrow, I I'm actually doing like the second part of the day between between around 3 p.m. and and 7 p.m. Miami time. So so yeah, I'm pretty much commentating every day and trying to to articulate with some tweets and like like you know to follow as much as I as I can. It will be. An exciting, an exciting two weeks. Hopefully, with with some Portuguese victories as well. That's <laughs> that's my that's that's what I went for the first couple of runs. I would love Nuno to make the main run to win his first ever Masters One Thousand uh, match. But but then yeah, the, all the storylines that that we that we have been talking here are very very exciting, and I'm very I'm very looking forward to having a. Uh, a great two weeks in Miami. Absolutely. Well, we were looking forward to having you on this show, Jose. So appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Appreciate all you do to shine a light on everything happening within our sport. And don't be a stranger. You're always welcome back on our show, my friend. So be safe and hopefully we will talk again soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with the great Jose Morgado. A massive thank you to him for taking the time to chat. I have long wanted to have the opportunity to speak with Jose as sincerely. There is no person in this business whose work ethic I respect more. No matter the time of day, no matter where the event is being played, you can always count on Jose Morgado to be offering updates on everything happening in the tennis world. I'm certain I don't need to tell any of you listeners to go follow him because I guarantee all of you already do. Uh, again, a massive thank you to him for taking the time to chat. Of course, again, as I alluded to in the intro, this is the first of many Miami Open-centric pod- uh, podcasts coming for all of you listeners. We have another first-time guest coming on tomorrow's show to talk with me about the top contenders in the draw, as well as the emerging sinner Alcaraz rivalry. We'll have other guests on to break down the draws themselves. We'll do the things we do to help all of you listeners prepare for another massive event on the tennis calendar. Of course, it's also the thick of the 2023 college tennis season. And if you have missed anything that's happened thus far, you can catch up with it all over on the Great Shot podcast feed. We have our weekly deciding points every Tuesday, Wednesday night, 9 p.m. Eastern time on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel. They're posted as GSPs the subsequent days if you want to catch up on anything that happens on any given week in the college tennis world. Those are the shows for you. Of course, we had a slew of fantastic interviews as well from our time at the Phoenix uh, in Phoenix at the Arizona Tennis classic. I mean, you name it. Kovacevic, the eventual champion, Borges, the finalist, Shevchenko, Richard Gasquet, Michael Emer, some really good talks. So be sure to go check out all of that content on our Cracked Interviews podcast feed. A shout out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f- of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. A shout out, of course, as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point. You all know the deal for the latest and greatest equipment in the business. Just go to tennis-point.com. Use our promo code CR15 to let them know we sent you there. With all of that said, though, for the fantastic Jose Morgado, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. We'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.